I want to talk to you about the love of God today. Matthew chapter 19, you can turn there, or I'm just going to read it to you, and if you believe me, it's fine. If you don't, just check it out. Jesus said this, he's quoting actually the uh, old commandment, Honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as you love who? Yourself. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I, I want to talk to you about love today, and maybe in some ways that you maybe have or have not heard. You know, there's a lot of talk about, um, about love, but um, here Jesus reminds us that we're to love people the way we love ourselves. In other words, the level in which we love ourselves becomes the, the platform, the foundation in which we love others. And and let me just say it a different way. If you don't love you, you won't love anyone else. And so there's all, there's all kinds of things. See, I think that when we were born, when we were little, we knew that we were born to be amazing and self-love is very natural. But something happens. It takes about 12 years of religion to convince us that being amazing is somehow not spiritual. And so, you know, when you watch little kids play, I was, I was watching my, my grandkids. I have eight, we have eight grandkids. They're Kathy's when they're bad. <sighs> but we have eight grandkids, and my, my uh, oldest grandson, his name's Elijah, and he said to his cousin Isaac, when they were, I think they were six and five, he said, let's wrestle. And uh, uh, Isaac said, okay. And Elijah said, I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> Hit him with some webs. <laughs> And Isaac said, I want to be the Spider-Man. He said, you can't be the Spider-Man. I'm already the Spider-Man. You can be Superman. He said, okay, I'll be Superman. So there they were, two superheroes wrestling in the front room. Then Riley walked in. Now, Riley looks like a blonde Brillo pad, like Cousin It. You can't even see her eyes. And at the time, she's about four. And she walks in, and she's Elijah's little sister. And she says, I want to play. I want to play. I want to be that Spider-Man. I want to be the Spider-Man. And Elijah says in his most authoritative voice, You can't be the Spider-Man. I'm already the Spider-Man. Just then I walk by and I, she says to me, Papa, Papa. I said, what? And she's crying. She says, They're not playing fair. They're not sharing. I picked her up. They're not sharing. You know, sharing. I picked her up. I said, What's wrong? I want to be the Spider-Man. They won't let me. I said, Why don't you be Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman can whip Spider-Man any day. Come on, man. Come on, man. She said, okay, I'll be the Wonder Woman. I let her down in the front room, and there they were, three superheroes wrestling in the front room. I walked away from there thinking, you know, no one was asking who wants to be the... No one was asking to be the garbage man. See, when you're little, you know you were born to be amazing. Someone has to talk you out of... You know, when the disciples, when they met Jesus, they were all arguing over what? Who's the greatest? You know, they didn't argue about who's the greatest before they met Jesus. There's something about meeting Jesus that reminds you that you were born in the image and likeness of God. You know, the argument between the disciples got so bad that James and John got their mother involved. And their mother asked, remember this? Their mother asked Jesus, can my son sit at your left and right hand in the kingdom? And it says that when, they, when, her, when their mother asked that question, the rest of the disciples were indignant. You know why they were indignant? They didn't think about getting their mother involved. <laughs> you know the book of John is the only book of the only gospel that calls John the disciple whom Jesus loved? And he wrote it. 
You know the Gospel of John is the only Gospel that tells you when Peter and John ran to the tomb, it's the only Gospel that tells you who got to the tomb first? John. John wrote that too. And what I'm getting at is that there's something about knowing that God loves you and that He created you to be amazing. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When Jesus died on the cross, He didn't just die because you sinned. He died to restore you to the glory that you fell short of. Remember John 17, one of the parts of the prayer of John 17 that Jesus was praying to His Father. He said, Father, I pray that the glory that You've given me, I'd give to, that we would give it to them. I heard a pastor preach just not too long ago. I was in a conference. And one of his points was that, that people are stealing the glory of God. I, <laughs> afterwards, I said to him, I said, I don't know how you steal something God gave you. You know, if I gave you my car, I can't accuse you of stealing it. So, you were born to be amazing. Just turn to your neighbor and say, you were born to rock. (laughs) There it is, right there. Get her done. You know that... Do you know that you teach people how to treat you by the way you treat yourself? A lot of people are like, no one likes me. No, the problem is you don't like you. See, if you don't like you, you will reproduce that among other people. See, the environment you have within you is the environment you create around you. The kingdom within you becomes the kingdom around you. Like, if you take a pauper and you put him in a palace, he'll make the palace a prison. But if you take a prince and you put him in a prison, he'll make the prison a palace. That's the story of Joseph. You always create the environment around you that you have within you. Are you with me? If you don't like you, you will tell people that you're not likable. And people will come around you and they will realize that, they don't, that you don't like yourself. And they think, if I get to know you, I won't like you either because you must know something about yourself that no one else knows. <laughs> see, see the, the truth is, is that you will never let someone love you more than you love you. And when somebody tries to love you more than you love you, you will sabotage that relationship. I know this by experience. <laughs> I have a Ph.D. in sabotage relationships. I spent my, my first 40 years not liking me. And I would tell my wife, I meet someone and say, they don't like me. She'd go, how do you know that? i go, I can feel it. What I could feel was, I didn't like me. And see, I teach people how to treat me by the way I treat me. See, if, let's think about it like this. If, you, if I go over your house and you got cars all over the place and trash everywhere and lawns two feet high. Some of you are like, well, that sounds like my house. (laughs) And I walk into your house and and there's junk all over your house. You know, I may not put my feet up on my coffee table at home, but I probably will in yours. You know why? Because the environment you created around you tells me how to treat you. But if you come to my house, if you live in that house, you come to my house and the lawns are manicured and things are nice. You know, I don't have to have a lot of money, but I mean, things are nice. You come to my house, you may put your feet on the coffee table at your house, but I bet you don't on my house. You know why? Because I told you how to treat me. See, if you don't have respect for yourself, others won't have respect for you. People are like, you know what, nobody wants to be my friend. Well, first you have to be a friend with you before anyone else is going to be a friend with you. See, it is, it is wrong to not love yourself. Let me just say this again. 
You are insulting God when you think bad about yourself. Don't call that humility. That is the spirit of stupid. I remember I was teaching in a school, uh, in this ministry school. Some, this is years ago at, in a very large church. This church was several thousand people. And I, I, I knew the senior pastor well, but I'd never been to his church, so I didn't know his staff. And, um, I, and I was going to do a week on the supernatural. So I was teaching on prophecy. This is five days, five hours a day for five days. And so here's the first five minutes. I'm introducing the students to the subject. And I'm thinking, well, before I teach them why, I'm, still, oh, I'm sorry. Before I teach them how to prophesy, I should teach them why. So I made this statement. And we're sitting at this long table that, you know, it's like there's 27 students on this long, long table. And I'm sitting at the end. And, and I say to the students, this is your mission if you should receive it. That you would find the gold that's in the middle of the dirt of people's lives. That you would mine the gold. Like we're not looking for dirt, we're looking for gold. And then I made this statement. And as I made this statement, the back door opened. I said that you would find the greatness that lies in every person, both Christian and pre-Christian. And as I made that statement, a man walked through the door and sat down. And he raised his hand. He had a question. And I didn't know who he was. But it turns out that he was there, the theologian of the church. He was on staff as the, as the theologian. But he's raised his hand and he said, I have a question. I'm thinking, well, <laughs> we've only been teaching five minutes. We already have a question. This is going to be a long week. I said, sir, what is your question? He said, I believe God is great. You, did your brain talk to you? My brain talks to me. My brain was like, be careful. It's not a question. Be careful. Watch out. Even a fool is considered wise when he doesn't talk. So I said, did I say something that made you think that I don't think God's great? He said, you said that we're supposed to call out greatness in everyone, both Christians and pre-Christians. I said, oh, yeah, I said that. He said, well, I believe that you're creating a doctrine that causes arrogance and pride to rise in people. Be careful. Watch out. Watch out. Be careful. Stupid, stupid. Watch out. (laughs) Don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. I find myself saying, well, I believe that religion castrates and emasculates people in the name of humility, and it's killing us. And when I said that, all the students simultaneously went, huh? I'm like, uh-oh, this must be somebody important. <laughs> so there was a beautiful, a beautiful painting on the wall. And I said, see that painting? He's like, yes. I said, you're the artist. Let's pretend you're the artist. He said, oh, okay. I said, you're the artist. He says, I get it. I said, what a stupid looking painting. It's the ugliest painting I've ever seen. He's looking at me like showdown 12 o'clock high. I said, let me ask you a question. Did demeaning the painting glorify the artist? He said, no. I said, you didn't paint you. God did. God was the artist. Jesus was the model. You were made in his image and in his likeness. You can't insult the painting without talking about the artist. You know what he said? I didn't say his first word. He says, I have three doctorates in theology, and I've never learned that. I said, man, you come to the supernatural school, it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> you know, whatever you misdiagnose, you'll mistreat. If you think you're a sinner after you receive Jesus, I don't even know that you were a sinner, but when you received Jesus, you became a saint. 
If you believe you're a sinner after you receive Jesus, you'll mistreat yourself. You'll find ways to punish yourself. You know what the Judas spirit is? Remember when Judas realized that he was wrong? What did he do? He went out and hung himself. A lot of people hanging themselves. They're creating their own redemption. That's a good word right there. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, verse 17. I pray, Paul writes, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ. Everybody say, to know the love of Christ. Which surpasses knowledge. Everybody say, which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. I don't know if you, if you, if you read that, but he says, I want you to know... The love of God, which surpasses knowing. And the Greek word means that you would know by experience what you could never know by the intellect. See, when you try to tell someone you're in love, have you ever like explained to somebody like, well, I'm in love with this woman. They say, what do you love about her? You know, when you get done explaining what you love about her, the sum of your words isn't actually, the, doesn't actually total <laughs> the covenant of your heart. Have you figured that out? And people are like, yeah, okay. And then they meet her and they're like, oh, she's all that. There's something about love that is not explainable, but it is. But it, there, there, are, there are just things that you can experience that you can't explain. You know, um, I had an experience uh, some years ago. Actually, The Supernatural Ways of Royalty, the, that book that I wrote, my first book came out of this experience. And um, it, I, I have a secretary. Her name's Nancy. She's actually a prophetess. It's kind of weird working with a prophetess. You know, she comes in. She's like, you're okay. How am I? Just kind of a weird dynamic. But one day, Nancy comes in my office, and she's crying, and, which is really totally uncommon for her. And um, so I say, uh, are you okay? And she says, yeah. And then she says, no. And I said, did I say something to hurt your feelings? And she says, no. And then she says, yeah. And so I said, what, hap- you know, what happened when we have this discussion? And she makes this statement. She says, you don't realize how much people value you. You don't realize how much people value you. And you don't carry yourself like you understand that people value your words. And you come out of your office and you say stuff. And you think you're being funny. But you are destroying the very people you're supposed to be leading with your words. And I said, did I say something? You said, yeah. And she cried. And I asked her to forgive me. And the day went on. It was one of those things that, you know, sometimes you have those encounters that take a couple of weeks to really get over. It wasn't like that. She forgave me. I gave her a hug. We went on with the day. It was all fine. That night, I went to bed and I had a dream. Have you ever had a dream where you can't remember the dream, but the emotion of the dream is with you when you wake up? Is that freaky or what? So I wake up to this emotion and the emotion is like... Like, I just woke up from seeing Schindler's List. You know, it's like, like this deep grief. Like someone died close to me. And I wake up and I'm in this deep grief and I have this part of this verse running through my mind. Which now I know is Proverbs 30, but it says, it's one part of Proverbs 30. It says, the world cannot hold up under a pauper when he becomes a king. Or a slave when he becomes a king. The world can't hold up under a slave when he becomes a king. And so I'm laying against the headboard and I have this deep grief and I'm like, I, I just, I want to cry, but I'm not sure why. 
And I say to God, God, are you talking to me? And he says, yes, you're a, you're a pauper who's become a king. And immediately he took me back to that morning where Nancy said, you don't realize how much people value you. You're not carrying yourself like people value you. And you're killing the very people you're supposed to be leading with your words. And the Lord says to me in, the, at, in that night, he said, do you know why? Oh, I've got to finish this part. And, he's, uh, and he took me back to my childhood. And, in, and I, my father drowned when I was three. My mother remarried. I was born out of wedlock, start out with. Then my, my father drowned when I was three. My mother remarried when I was five. A man who beat me till blood ran down my legs on several occasions. He used to, I can't tell you what he used to call me. Stupid, the word for donkey. That was my name. And he, and he would tell me, you're the trash that came with the treasure. You're the trash that came with the treasure. I didn't marry you. I married your mother. My mother divorced him when I was uh, 15 and remarried, uh, when I was 13, remarried again when I was 15. Another rageaholic. And so I spent my first 17 years with people who were maniacs who didn't like me. So here I am. Now we're back that night. And the Lord asked me a question. He said, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? How many of you have read that part of the Bible or you've seen the movie? You know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house. And I'm thinking, Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house. You know the story, you know, the, the, the king is killing all the firstborn males and the mom puts him in the basket and he goes down the Nile and the princess finds him and he's raised by the king, right? The Lord says, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? I said, no, but I bet you're going to tell me. He said, because a man who's in slavery internally cannot free people who are in slavery externally. So it was necessary for Moses to be raised as a prince so he would free my people. And this is what he said to me. He said, but you've been raised as a pauper. You've been raised as a slave, and it's time for you to change, son. Now, I don't know how sovereignty and free will all work out. I, don't, I really don't get that. And I believe... At different seasons, I believe it's all about God. And different seasons, I believe it's all about man. And somehow, sometimes they collide. You guys have that problem too at times? Okay, you don't. Okay, great. That's awesome here. You know, I went through, you know it's like this. When God says you're going to change, I know you have a free will, but it doesn't feel like it. That's what I'm trying to say. And I could take my Bible in that season, which was about, probably lasted two years, and I could throw it against the wall and go pick it up and it would say... You are royal priesthood, a holy nation. I could throw it against the wall and go pick it up. It's like, you've loved with an everlasting love. I could throw it down it would, and pick up my Bible and say, and I have inscribed your name on the palms of my hands. I was like, I couldn't get away from you. I love you with an everlasting love. You are amazing. You were born to, in my image, in my life. You are a child of God. I, you never have the Bible, like when God's trying to show you something, it's like the only verses you can find. It's like neon, like you can't even see the other verses. It was like that for two years with me. And God began to say to me, you are a pauper who's now a king. And it's time for you to understand the ways of royalty. And he began to build in me the ways of royalty. And he began to teach me. He began to say, I, you know, he, when God would say, I love you, I would think, you have to. 
you know, you, you like you have no choice. So God started telling me, I like you. Like, I like you. That's a different thing. That, that kind of, that, that, that's the connotation like you actually enjoy me. And the Lord would be, I enjoy you. I like you. I like being around you. And so I started learning about love. And you know, there's something about love. I went and I was doing a conference. I'll tell you a couple of the speakers. I was doing a conference with um, David Hogan and Roland Baker. Do you guys know either one of those guys? And they, were, they, were, they spoke for the first two days and I spoke the third day. And they were talking about what they were doing. And they were talking about, you know, David Hogan's been like left for dead three different times. And he's, he fasts every other day. And he requires all, even the animals to fast. And he works out and he gets up at five and prays. And, you know, and Roland was talking about, you know, ministry in Africa and all the things they've been through. And, you know, do you ever, you ever like have someone share their testimony? And when you, they get done, you don't think you know the Jesus at all? I'm in this conference listening to these guys for two days, and I'm thinking, I, you know what? If they give an altar call, I'm going to get me saved again. <laughs> and I'm supposed to teach the, in the morning the, of the third day. And I'm laying up at night, and I'm thinking about, and there was, there was three other speakers besides them, and it was all about this, you know, intense sacrifice. And I'm laying in, in, in bed, and I can't sleep, and I'm thinking, man, what I do isn't going to fit. Like, <laughs> I don't fit this at all. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, he said, passion always looks like sacrifice to people who aren't in love. He said, passion always looks like sacrifice to people who aren't in love. And I began to realize that we do stuff out of love and it doesn't feel like sacrifice at all. But it looks like sacrifice to people who are watching. And they're like, oh, you know, I used to ride my motorcycle... Well, I was 15. When I met Kathy, she was 12. We got engaged when she was 13. I was older, man. I was 15. And I had a Honda. Actually, I had a Honda 100 then. I had a Honda 100. You know, you meet the nicest people on a Honda. And she lived 30 miles from me. We went to different schools together. She lived 30 miles from me, and I only got to see her on, on Saturday and Sunday. So I'd, I'd drive there Sunday, Friday night after work. And I would drive there if it was raining, if it was snowing, it never did, but it was rained all the time. And I would ride my motorcycle, and I, I didn't have, in those days, didn't have any money, so I, I didn't have goggles, and I would, I would ride with my, my hand over my eyes just so the, the rain wouldn't get my eyes, and I'd get to her house, and because my motorcycle was so small, I couldn't ride on the freeway, so that 30 miles was about 45 miles, and, and I'd ride at night, and I'd ride in the cold, and, I'd, and, I, and I, 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 would just, I just needed to go see my baby. I need to go see my baby. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. And people are like, oh, you know, it's such a sacrifice. No, no, I need to see my baby. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and the people that watch that, they're like, oh, you know, he's just, you know, he just serves her so well. Man, it wasn't anything to do with that, man. It didn't have anything to do with pure motives even. I just needed to see my baby. Have you ever read Song of Solomon? Solomon, Solomon, I love Song of Solomon. Like, he goes in to see his woman, right? Do you remember this? And, and she's in bed already, and she says, and he knocks on the door and says, Hey, you know, baby, anything going on tonight? I'm playing this down a little. Is this all right in here? And she says, I've already washed my feet, and I'm in bed. Do you remember this part? And he says, 
you know, I'm just putting it in modern language, bummer. <laughs> and he leaves. And when he leaves, she thinks, stupid, 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 what am I doing? And she gets out of bed, and she opens the door, and her lover's gone. And so a big part of the Song of Solomon is, is that she's running through the streets looking for her lover, right? And she says, hey, she says to the watchman, have you seen my baby? <laughs> like he's like a gazelle. And he's got hair like this, and he's got eyes like this, and he can jump over walls and leap over things, and he's my baby. And he's looking for her, because he hears, you know, they don't have cell phones, but he hears through the grapevine that he, she's looking for him, and he's looking for her. And he's like, have you seen my woman? I mean, she's got a belly like this, and she's got a neck like, and she's got, she's got it all happening. <laughs> She's got it all going on. Things he wants to climb and things happening in that book. I'm just telling you what's in the, I'm in the Bible, man. Right? And, and so he's, a, he's after her and she's after him and, she's, and they're going like, have you seen my baby? Well, what's he look like? Well, he got this going on. He can leap like that. And he's got this hair. And you, have you seen my baby? She's got a neck like this. And she's got teeth that look like a, a, a flock of sheep. <laughs> if you've got a small flock, at least you want them to be together, right? <laughs> Just anyway... And if you've ever read the, the Song of Solomon, you see, you see that, that, that he's chasing, her's chasing, and it says, you know, it'll say, it says, for the bridegroom, right? Then for the bride. Just look, you should read, read it. But, and, and so about every fourth or fifth verse, it says, for the choir. Look, that's the only thing my marriage has lacked in 37 years. If I ever become a quadrillionaire, I'm going to get me a choir like, like Clarence to follow us around. And sing to us. You see the choir singing to them? Wouldn't it be awesome? Like, you know, like, like you see your baby and all of a sudden you hear, Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough. You know, that's what, that's what I'm lacking in my marriage. Like, you know, like she comes in the house and I hear Clarence is like, dun 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 dun. Man, I'm right about this stuff. I was thinking about this uh, passage. Let me see. I'll, I'll, I'll get it here for you in a minute. Oh, Luke 7, 37. Let me read you this passage. It's Jesus. 37. Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Actually, it actually says she was immoral or she was a prostitute. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, she began weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping, wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing him on the feet. And anointing them with, with perfume. And when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was really a prophet, he'd know what sort of person this woman is who's touching him. For she is she's a prostitute. 
And Jesus answered, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. This isn't Simon Peter. This is Simon, the Pharisee that invited him over. And he replied, oh, say it, teacher. He said, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. They were both unable to repay, and he graciously forgave them both. Which one will he love more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who gave him more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, turning to the woman, he said, he's turning to the woman. He says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped him with her hair. And Simon, you gave me no kiss. You gave me no kiss when I came here. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but she, for she loved much, but, she, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I love this. I love this. I love this. Uh, I wish I had some more time. This is why the matriarchs need to come back. This is why we need women in leadership. They teach us about passion. And Simon says, you know what? This woman. Yeah, come on. You can give it up for the women. It's all right. I'm telling you, the woman was taken out of the man and the man needs the woman. And this woman comes in and teaches Simon a little bit about passion. And, she, and he says, Jesus said, listen, Simon, this woman, when I walked in the house, Simon, you didn't give me no water. But this woman has wet my feet with her tears. And she has wiped my feet with her hair. Simon, when I came in, you gave me no kisses. In other words, you should have, but you didn't. But this woman, who you don't like, has not ceased from kissing my feet. That's a positive. He's saying to Simon, she's behaving rightly. You're behaving wrongly. You got spark like love. You're like a Vulcan. You're like hugging a parking pie. This woman, who's a prostitute... She, what she's doing is wrong for a living, but what she's doing in your house is right. She's kissing my feet. She's weeping over them. She's anointing my feet with perfume. You didn't even give me oil. Simon, get off me. Simon, you see this woman? This is what you should have been doing. I believe God wants to bring passion back. To the church. I believe Jesus has a high value for passion. If he loves it coming from a prostitute, think, think of what he'd love for it to come from a person who, who walked in purity. I believe, the, I believe what you can't explain, you can experience. But I believe we try to explain something we haven't even experienced. And people leave with a bunch of new rules and still have never experienced the love of God. 
Paul wrote to the church, three churches he wrote to. He wrote, greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter wrote, greet one another with a kiss of love. There's something about passion that needs to come back to the church so that love actually looks like something besides words. And when we say, God loves you, people are like, ain't no mountain high enough. And they get that Jesus is leaping over the mountains. He's enduring the streams. He's enduring persecution. He's, he's running through the city saying, have you seen my baby? I told you that I was raised by two stepfathers who literally didn't like me. By the way, they both got saved. I get to tell that part. But I have a grandfather that loved me. My grandfather loved me. And my grandfather took us in at different seasons in our life when my mother was struggling in her marriages. And my grandfather was... I gotta, first of all, I got I to I explain my grandfather to you. My grandfather's about five foot five-ish tall and about that wide. Now, now he ain't fat. He's just a farmer. He's just, you know, stout. And his hands, they're, they're, they're yellow like from calluses. And when he shook hands with them, it's like shaking hands with someone who's wearing a glove. And my grandfather, had, uh, uh, he had a disease in his gums, and so they pulled all his teeth out. But for some reason, they left his four eye teeth. And, and his, he called them his choppers. His choppers didn't fit very well, so he kept them out most of the time. And he wore coveralls, and he kept the choppers in the coveralls. Now, he kept them so they stuck out a little bit. In case he wanted to eat quickly, he could pop them in. You know, you, get, you never know when you're going to urge. And my grandfather, he, he, he wore these coveralls, but he didn't wear underwear. Now, you would know that my grandfather didn't wear underwear because he didn't button his coveralls, which was a problem for my grandmother because he used to argue about it all the time. And my grandfather didn't really walk. He just kind of waddled. You know what I mean? Just kind of the waddle. And he would take his teeth. He had this nervous habit because he didn't have his choppers in all the time. And he'd take his... You can't do it unless you don't have your teeth. And he would suck his lips in behind his eye teeth. And he would do this. As a nervous habit. But my grandfather loved me. And you know, he's a farmer, so he's a jack of all trades. Like he's a plumber, an electrician, and a carpenter, and a mechanic. You know, those guys that could just do anything. So we live with my grandfather you know, on and off during different seasons. And, and when I was about probably 10 years old, we were living with my grandfather. And my grandfather would go to the hardware store every day, and I would go with him. And my mother would always say, my grandfather would say, come on, let's go to the hardware store. And my mother would say, don't ask for anything. You understand me? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Don't you ask your grandfather for anything. So we get to the hardware store. My grandfather said, you know, just look around and I'll find you when I'm done shopping. Okay, so I look around. And I remember this one time in particular. I was looking at the hammers that were on the pegboard. And I was like mesmerized by the hammers. And my grandfather comes. He's like, uh, do you want something? No. You, you like those hammers? Uh, no. Did your mother ask you not to? tell you not to ask for anything? Uh-huh. Pick out one of those hammers. Okay. So I got me a Stanley all steel with blue handled hammer. I remember that. Oh, 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 oh. 
And I came home that day and I hammered every nail. I'm 10 years old. I mean, anything that didn't move, I hammered it. And my mom worked, so I was by myself a lot. So I did that for about two days and then I ran out of nails to hammer. And I thought one day, I'm going to build me a go-kart. So I'm looking for wood in my grandfather's garage and I can't find any. Then I look at the side of the garage and there's all this shiplac wood. And I'm like, ah, there's some wood. So I tore off the siding off of one side of the garage. And I, and I built me a go-kart. And I needed wheels. So I took the wheels off my grandfather's lawnmower and I nailed them to my go-kart. Well, my mom gets home at three and she gets home and, and I say, hey, mom, I built me a go-kart. She's like, oh, that's, that's a nice go-kart. Where'd you get the wood? I'll say from the garage. She looks at the garage, and the sun is shining through the side of the garage. She looks at me, and she said, your grandfather's going to kill you. Where'd you get the wheels? I said, I got them from the lawnmower. Your grandfather's going to kill you. You understand me? When your grandfather gets home, you're going to tell your grandfather what you did. So my grandfather gets home. He had a 53 Ford, black Ford, my whole life, from the time I could remember. And he would, you know, he'd turn the car off a block before the house and coast in. That's what happens when you're raised in a depression, right? Coast in. And my grandfather gets out of the car. And my mom, she grabs him by the neck, and she intends to leave monuments on my neck. It wasn't called child abuse in those days. It was called something to remember. And she... Pushes me out the door and she says, tell your grandfather what you did. I said, oh, build me a go-kart. So my grandfather looks at the go-kart and he's like, oh, well, that's a nice go-kart. Where'd you get the wood? I said, from the garage. <laughs> Sun shining through the garage. He goes, my mom's like, he did that. My, my grandfather's like, oh, we'll just get some plywood and cover that up. Where'd you get the wheels? <laughs> from the lawnmower. He goes, ah, uh, come on, get in the car. Let's go get some axles and some real wheels from the, from the, from the uh, orchard supply. I'm like, my mom's all year dead. A few years later, when I was 15, my grandfather bought me a, a Trail 90, a Honda Trail 90. Anybody ever had a Honda Trail 90? Come on, baby. That thing got eight speeds forward. And my grandfather moved to a farm. And so in the, in the summer, I lived on the farm with my grandfather. And my grandfather bought me, a, no, built me a treehouse. I mean a treehouse. It had a roof. It had a toilet. Yeah, yeah. You didn't want to be under it. My grandfather was ahead of his time. He was in a less bio green stuff, but he hadn't figured out the whole system yet. And I could work like I had chores to do. My grandfather worked at Hershey's and had a farm, so I had chores to do. He'd leave me a list of chores that I had to get done. Uh, and then once my chores were done, then I could go ride my motorcycle, do whatever I wanted. So, so I got my chores done, and I go down to my treehouse, and this other tree had grown through my treehouse. This is about just about that big around, six inches around. It had grown through my treehouse. So I think that's no problem. I'm going to pull the tree out. So I drive. It's it, my treehouse is down below in this valley, and my my grandfather's farm, and all the tractors and everything, and the garage shop is all up top. So I ride up top, and I get about a hundred feet of chain. And I put it around my neck and I ride down a hill and I wrap it around the tree and I put it on my motorcycle and I back my motorcycle up to the tree and I take off. I fly in the dirt and when I get up, I'm not in my right mind. I don't know if I was ever, but it was, it was worse than that normal. I needed an edumacation. And so I said to the tree, I said, you have messed with the wrong guy. Now, I know you can cut a tree down, but I didn't think of that at the time. 
So I drive back up the hill and I get about 250 feet of chain. All the chain I could find. I look like Rambo. I got it wrapped around my neck. And I get on my motorcycle and I drive as fast as I can. And I think, well, you know what? One of the things I need to do is I need to have leverage. So I climb, I, I climb the tree. It took me about 20 minutes. I climb a tree with this chain on and I tie the chain to the top of the tree. You know, so I get leverage. You know, the engineering people understand this stuff. I tied the, the chain to the top of the tree and then I hooked it to my motorcycle and the, and the hill was right there, right next to my treehouse. There was a hill like this. And so I, I pulled my motorcycle backwards up the hill, 200 feet up the hill, so that I could get up full speed like Evil Knievel and pass the tree at full speed so the tree would and break off. That was my plan. So I still, I can still remember, I'm coming down the hill, and my goal was to be in the fourth gear when I pass the tree. I go, whoa, I pass the tree, and the tree goes, I'm watching my rearview mirror, the tree goes, whoa. This all happened in milliseconds, but you know how the world stops? Whoa. And I go flying off. About 50 feet from my motorcycle, I land in the soft dirt, and I look up like a quarterback that's just been, you know, tackled and looking where you threw the ball, and my motorcycle goes, whoa! 200 feet in the air. It throws my motorcycle, catapults my motorcycle all the way to the top of the hill. Now I'm really mad. I walk up to the tree, I said, you have, screw- you have messed with the wrong person. And I walk up the hill, and I get my grandfather's tractor, which I am not supposed to drive unless he's around. And I get all the chain, and I drive down the hill, as fast as I can go. And I take the forks, and I put it on both sides of the tree, and I wrap the chain around the forks and the tree, and I get on the tractor, and I, and I pull the lever for the forks to come up, and it bends the forks straight down. Bends the forks straight down. And I came into my right mind. And I drove the tractor back, and I, I think, I'm going to put it in the barn. I'm not going to tell my grandfather. So my grandfather comes home at 3 o'clock from Hershey's in his black Ford, turned off the car half a block before he gets there, ooh, coasts in, gets out. How you doing? All right. Everything okay? Uh-uh-huh. Uh-uh-huh. You get your chores done? Uh-uh-uh. Are you all right? Uh-uh. What's wrong? Come, come quickly. <laughs> I put the, the, I close the garage door and everything. My grandfather walks it and the forks, I have pulled the lever back as far as possible. The forks are straight down. My grandfather walks around the tractor. He's all, what, what happened? My grandfather's all, you know what? That's good that that happened because I've been wanting to teach you how to use the torches. Go get the torches. So he teaches me how to straighten the forks out. Then we have this big family reunion. And I've got eight cousins and they're all girls. And they're all my age. And my, my grandfather, they weren't Christians. And so they'd have these parties and they'd, they'd drink too much. And so in the midst of that, my grandfather, we have this, we have this old 48 flatbed truck, dual wheels. He throws me the keys and he says, go have some fun with the girls. You know, driving on the, on the dirt, on the, on, on the farm. So, so I get the girls, they get on the back and we, we're, you know, they're all like 13 to 17 
and I'm driving. I got the truck, and as fast as it'll go, and the whole thing's rattling. Everything rattles, you know, those old trucks. Everything rattles, the windows rattling, the girls are hanging on to the back. One girl in front, and we get, we're driving as fast as we can go through the farm, and whoo, we sink in the mud. Now, the girls, these are city girls, they ain't never seen dirt before. So I tell them, hey, you got to get off and push. They get off, and they're like, no, no, we're not getting off. I said, no, no, we're stuck. You need to get off and push. That's what we do on farms. So they get, they've got eight girls back there pushing. I rev it up, pop the clutch, you know, dual wheels, covered them with mud. I'm just like, push, push. They're like, so we get out of the mud. They get on the back, and we're driving down this dirt road, which I have forgotten. There's a cliff on one side. There's a river on the other side. And I'd forgotten that the road was washed out. So I'm showing off, and I'm going as fast as I can. The girls are hanging off the back. And we get to the right where the road washed out, and I stop just in time. And I go, oh, man, we got to back up two miles. So my cousin Denise is in the pasture side. I said, open the door and make sure we don't fall off. She's like, okay. I put it in reverse. As fast as I can go backwards, like seven miles an hour. All of a sudden, a tree grabs the door and rips it right off the truck. It's hanging by one little piece of the hinge. My cousin looks at me and she says, Grandpa's going to kill you. Well, Grandpa's going to kill you. I'm like, don't, let's not tell him. So we drive back there where the party's going on. And, and, I, and I told all the girls, don't, don't tell anybody. We'll just park the truck and we'll pretend like someone else did it. And my cousins jump off the truck. They're like, Chris wrecked the truck. Chris wrecked the truck. <laughs> my grandfather comes wallowing out. What's going on here? What's going on? My uncle's yelling at me. You stupid. You're an idiot. You could have killed those girls. Da, 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 da. My grandfather comes out. And I knew something was going good. He, when he waddles out, he looks over at me and he winks. <laughs> and he goes, uh, what happened here? I said, I told him, truck and the tree he grabbed. He's, oh, you know what? I've been wanting to take the doors off this truck for a long time. It is, takes way too long to get in and out of this truck, having to open and close those doors. Listen, get the, get the wrenches and take both doors off. You know, my grandfather taught me about the love of God because he forgave me when I didn't deserve it. And I think there's a lot of people here that your, your heavenly father to you is some kind of, it's like my uncle screaming and yelling and you're going to get it and you deserve it and let me tell you what it's going to be like. Your grandfather's going to kill you. You don't realize that God loves you so much that when you do something wrong, he's already figured out a way to make it work in your favor. Would you stand please? I want to pray for you. Put your hand on your heart. I want to pray that you would experience the love of God you can't explain. Lord, I pray right now that you would release the love of God. That our heart would go places our mind couldn't even get. That you would take us beyond the veil. That you would take us into the holy of holies. And what we would find there is a Father who's been waiting for us for a long time. A Father who's been waiting for us for a long time. Who's, who our sins have separated more because we have not felt like we could be close to the Father. And a Father's like, I'll just get the torches. We'll just fix that. No problem. we got it worked out. 
I'll just take that door off. Listen, you're way more important than my truck. You're way more important than my garage. Listen, you're way more important than my tractor. You're way more important than even things I value. You're my son. You're my daughter. Lord, I pray today that people that have walked with a broken heart, they've walked through life and things have went wrong, and they've said, no, I, I just get to be tolerated. I just get to, you know, God's got to kind of love me because he, because he's God. He said he would. But God, I pray that you would show them, no, you are passionately in love with them. Like there's not a mountain too high or a valley too low or a river too deep that would separate. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that today that we would experience what we've been talking about for generations. In Jesus' name. And I thank you for it. Amen.